0: Here's Dr.
1: DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're speaking about a question that's generating interest all over the country. And in fact, I was just in a meeting at a regional Indian health board, and this topic came up as an issue that was affecting lots of tribal members, at least from the particular health professionals' tribe. The topic is one that you may not have thought of as being a serious health issue. But we're going to find out just how serious it is and what you can do about it. The topic is snoring. We've got an expert to lead us on that discussion today. His name is Dr. Gene Sambatero. Gene, it's great to have you with us.
2: Thank you, David. I appreciate you inviting me for this opportunity to share this information.
1: Now, Gene, no doubt people that are tuning in, they're saying, well, what kind of an expert deals with snoring? you have a doctorate in snoring or what is your background?
2: My background is in dentistry. I don't think there is any uh, doctor who in snoring, although there are board-certified sleep physicians that certainly deal with snoring.
1: Exactly, exactly. So I am glad we've got a dentist on the show because, really, those oral dimensions and a lot of things happening in the mouth and the upper airway often are a big part of the snoring problem, aren't they?
2: Yes, they are, and those are things that we look at every day as we do Typical dental exams on a patient.
1: Gene, before we start talking about some of the strategies to help people with the problem of snoring, tell us about why health professionals like you, like me and my colleagues, why are we so concerned about snoring?
2: Well, I think snoring is really a signal. It's not a pathology itself, although uh, a spouse might think it is. It's keeping him or her awake. Mm-hmm. but in itself, it's just a signal that something underlying is really going on, and generally the snoring means that the tongue is obstructing the airway or the nasal passes are congested and someone can't breathe. That's the real problem.
1: So basically what snoring is, it's a warning that something more serious can be going on, isn't it?
2: Yeah, sort of like the warning signal on your car dash. You don't want to just unplug it and ignore it, which uh, a lot of these appliances now that you can get even online that may stop the snoring, but may not stop the sleep apnea.
1: Wow. So some of these people that are saying, I don't want to go through the trouble of having this detailed sleep study, sleeping in a strange laboratory, maybe it's even as far as their insurance coverage, or maybe they're in Indian country and in a somewhat remote reservation. There's not a lab anywhere close. They don't want to drive a day or a large portion of a day to get somewhere to do this, they've heard about some simple thing, some simple thing they can buy in a drugstore, and they've tried it, and their partner says, hey, you stop snoring. You're saying the problem may not be fixed?
2: Well, the snoring might be going away, but they still may have obstructive sleep apnea. So all they did was just quiet the signal so they could with this appliance actually sort of deaden that snoring sound, but they may still be choking to death in the middle of the night. So, so they got to be really careful about these appliances and making sure they're not causing a bigger problem because generally if they're snoring, the spouse might wake them up with an elbow to the side. So now that's gone away, they may not have that opportunity to be woken up.
1: Wow. So obstructive sleep apnea, what all does that mean?
2: Basically, that the airway has been occluded and a number of things that could happen. It could be from nasal congestion because of a bad cold or sinus problem or allergies. Or it could be that the tongue falls into the back of the throat when you lay on your back. So those are things, anything that can block the airway and prevent oxygen from getting through your lungs, that's considered obstructive sleep apnea. could be also, what you see in children, adenoids and tonsils that are swollen.
1: Okay, so apnea is a lack of breathing or an absence of breathing, at least for a period of time, right?
2: Yes, yeah. and technically when you have a test, uh, one apneic event means you stop breathing for a minimum of 10 seconds.
1: So why is that dangerous? I mean, 10 seconds, hey, anybody can hold their breath for 10 seconds, so why do people get concerned about it?
2: Well, maybe that's the minimum, just to actually count as an apneic event. Many times these events will go on for three or four minutes.
1: Wow. That's when
2: it becomes really dangerous. So, yeah, exactly. If it's just 10 seconds, but if it's 10 seconds or two minutes all night long, each time your oxygen level is dropping, which means you're not getting oxygen to your brain and to your heart and your other vital organs while you're sleeping.
1: Now, when we were writing a book on high blood pressure not long ago, it was uh, shocking to look at the connection between sleep apnea and high blood pressure. And we learned that some people just treating that sleep apnea, that took away their high blood pressure problems. They could get off their medications. Are there other diseases or other conditions like that, that if you treat the sleep apnea, you've treated something else as well?
2: Yeah, many systemic uh, issues or comorbidities, cardiovascular disease, especially heart attacks and strokes, diabetes, hypertension, as you just mentioned, Uh, We've even seen cases, certainly with children, ADD, ADHD, learning disabilities, uh, also uh, problems with dementia, early dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, erectile dysfunction, and in some cases, even suicidal thoughts. Wow. So, all these have been documented as potential problems related to not getting enough oxygen during that restful time when you're sleeping.
1: I mean, this is really important. A lot of times in Indian country, I hear people talking about concerns, about mental health issues, about suicide. In fact, I was just talking with someone from a tribe where there'd been some tragic uh, suicides among some of the youth. And of course, this is not a native issue per se. I mean, it is, but it affects every demographic in America, uh, the whole issue of mental health and, and suicide. But I never really put on my radar screen, I don't think, sleep apnea with uh, suicide risk
2: no most people don't so it's overlooked uh, in many cases by practitioners it's not like you say on your radar but we've got studies to actually back that up and as many of these other i think comorbidities that uh, are are being affected and if you really think about it it kind of makes sense if someone's choking you you're going into you know that sympathetic fight or flight state if you're in that state all night long, it's got to have some compromising effects on the whole body. And maybe then you're diagnosed with depression because you're not sleeping, you're not getting to sleep, and then you put on medication. And that may be leading to some potential suicidal thoughts.
1: Wow. So basically, we're talking about a huge problem. Give us some figures. I mean, how many people really, uh, say, in North America and the U.S., are affected with snoring?
2: I think the estimate is around somewhere around 40 million. Wow. And it's probably more than that.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: there are cases. Actually, I have patients that, you know, they live alone. Uh, and they didn't even know they were snoring until they went on vacation with family or, or did a retreat with other people in the room. and So unbeknownst to them, so there's so it's probably that number is even higher.
1: So we're talking about millions of people are affected. It's something that has implications far beyond, quote, a good night's sleep. But you and I as clinicians know, I mean, one of the red flags that I have as an internal medicine specialist is if a patient or a spouse gives me a story of falling asleep at inappropriate times. I mean, this is one of the kind of giveaway signs that there's something going on with disordered sleep at night, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something, when you look at all the things you do, like yourself in, in internal medicine, I, I haven't found anything in, in healthcare that is so overwhelming and over, you know, so comprehensive in terms of how many different diseases it might be related to. So, I mean, diet, yes, we know that's an issue, not lack of exercise, but the sleep issue, I think, is... That's a big factor, and it's not always just obstructive sleep apnea. You know, patients have insomnia or upper airway resistance. There's all these things that are just people. We are a sleep-deprived society.
1: Wow. This is a, it's a huge topic. I don't know what you think about this, Gene, but one way I've heard someone describe it, you gave that illustration of someone being choked at night. Uh, I think that's powerful, you know, with this activating this fight-or-flight response. The other illustration I've heard, and I'm kind of interested in your feedback on it, is when your oxygen level starts to drop, your brain arouses, ultimately tells your lungs to breathe. So even though a person may not be conscious of waking hundreds of times a night, many of those people with the obstructive sleep apnea are indeed doing that, at least on the level of the brain. So their brain really isn't resting much. Does that Sound like a, a good way to describe it as well?
2: Yes, that's exactly what's happening. So, with the, as you know, when you're lacking oxygen, you're actually building up CO2. Mm-hmm. And the CO2, as it builds up high enough, this patient or person who's sleeping who's actually not breathing will suddenly take a big gasp of the air. They'll wake up simply because they're in that fight-or-flight survival mode. The CO2 level is going up so high that they have to breathe. And they fall right back to sleep. They, they don't even remember waking up. Mm. There's an amnesic effect. And because that's happening, the brain becomes hypoxic. And I think that's the reason why you'll see signs of early dementia and even Alzheimer's.
1: Wow. Basically, you're making a powerful plea that if you have problems at night, if you're snoring, I'm speaking to you, my listeners. If you have problems with snoring, or if you have a spouse that's snoring, or another loved one that you're aware of is snoring, this is something that demands some medical attention, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. And you have to reach out. It's just, we have to take it more serious. And I know, and you may experience this, I mean, probably even all your listeners, they know someone who snores, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's their uncle or some other relative, you know, after, maybe after dinner or watching TV. And it's kind of, it's always been like a family joke, you know, Uncle Charlie, whoever, you know, he snores, he, you can hear him in the logs, and everyone has a good chuckle. Little do they know that he's just maybe taking his last breath.
1: Wow. Well, Gene, I know you're not here just to scare us. You have been doing some practical things to help your patients and others over the years. You're also the author of a book that deals with this whole subject. Tell us about uh, the book.
2: The book's? Stop the Snore, and the title actually was changed. Initially, it was called Silence the Snore, and then I said, well, wait a minute. We don't actually want to just silence it because of our what we were talking about earlier in this conversation is that it's kind of a signal.
0: Mm-hmm. We want
2: to find out what is actually causing the snore so we can stop that. And so in my book, we talk about that specifically and that we don't want to buy these over-the-counter appliances. You want to be evaluated by either a board-certified sleep physician or a dentist that has experience in sleep medicine so that you can be evaluated and determined whether a CPAP uh, mask might be the ideal thing for you or maybe a dental appliance. And we talk about all that in the book.
1: So the good news is the book has got all these details, but maybe even better news for those listening right now is you're going to stick with us for the duration of the show and help us understand some of these things, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. Thank you.
1: Listen, if somebody's got to rush off on us, Gene, and they're not going to hear some of your practical discussion that comes up later in the show, is there an easy way to get a copy of the book, Stop the Snore?
2: Yes, it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble.
1: Okay, so Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Someone can pick up your book. Now, you have a website as well, don't you?
2: I do have a website uh, that speaks specifically about the book or more about the book. And that's com.
1: Okay. So, I mean, your name is not the easiest one to get because Gene could be spelled a variety of ways. It's G-E-N-E, right? Correct. So so is it D-R, just the initials, D-R, and then Gene?
2: Yeah, D-R. Gene, G-E-N-E, and then S-A-M. B is in boy, A T is in Tom, A-R-O dot com.
1: And if they go there, they can not only get the book, but you've got other helpful materials that might not cost an arm and a leg. Is that true?
2: Yes, we have lots of blogs about sleeping, and some media and some videos that uh, will give you a little more information about the whole realm of sleep issues.
1: Wow. Great stuff. We have got to step away, Gene, but we're going to be coming right back to American Indian Living. We're talking with Dr. Gene Sambatero. He's a dentist who's really determined to help you deal with that problem that's causing the snoring or that loved one. We've got some great insights coming up as this show continues. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned for more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose.
0: Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back
1: with Dr. David DeRose and my guest, Dr. Gene Sambatero. Dr. Sambatero is a dentist, a doctor of dental surgery. He is also a fellow of the Academy of General Dentistry. He's the author of the book Stop the Snore, and he's helping us really understand about the significance of snoring, but not just stopping there. We want to talk about some things we can do to treat snoring. Gene, before we go there, though, some people are probably scratching their heads. They're saying, well, sleep, dentistry? I mean, I don't think of a dentist necessarily being the guy to help me with snoring. How did you get involved with this, and is that unusual for a dentist to be involved with or not?
2: No, not really. I'm sure your listeners are saying, to you, David. Why did you bring a dentist on? But it's more and more common. You'll hear more dentists being involved in this. And I think it's it's really pretty natural for us because we tend to, one, see our patients more often mm-hmm. than physicians uh, if they're coming in for treatment or coming in for their three-month or six-month recare. So the first thing we do is we're, we're having them open their mouth. We're looking into their mouth or the oral cavity. And quite often, it'll kind of just stand out in front of you, you'll see some early signs or even late signs that possibly this patient might have a sleep disordered breathing.
1: Now, you got my interest. What would a dentist see that would give you an idea that someone might have, say, obstructive sleep apnea?
2: Well, we would see typically teeth, worn down teeth, which might be an indication that they are grinding or clenching their teeth at night, Mm -hmm. which generally is a... A mechanism to compensate for the airway it's the compensatory hmm. thing, protective mechanism, really.
1: So you mean to tell me that some patients who have this teeth grinding, we sometimes use that fancy word bruxism, you're yes. telling me that it's a sign that they've got other disordered sleep patterns?
2: Well, it's a potential indicator, and this has been a puzzle for dentists for years that we didn't know why patients were clenching and grinding and wearing their teeth down this all starts to make a lot more sense because when your airway is blocked quite often what you'll do is you'll clench the jaw muscles in order to relax the dilator muscles around the throat so it's really a protective it's fight or flight so i i I mean i'll give up my teeth in order to breathe and get oxygen
1: wow i mean i'd never heard of that connection yes
2: it's it's in the literature now, so it's, it's not 100%. As, as you know, in medicine, nothing is. But we do see that wear on the teeth. We may see broken teeth, uh, severely worn down teeth, of course, um, that has been going on for many years. We will look at their tongue. The tongue may look like it's too big for their mouth. Hmm. So is the tongue too big for the mouth? That's possible. But more than likely, their mouth is too small. So it looks like a gigantic tongue. If you look in the back of the throat and have them stick their tongue out, You can't see their airway in these patients who have severe sleep apnea. So the term malampati uh, is something that we use to describe not being able to, or either being able to see the airway or not being able to see it.
1: So a person who I see in the clinic, let's say they're complaining of a sore throat, and they really have trouble getting that tongue down and away from the airway for me to look at the back of the throat, I should be thinking, well, maybe this person has more problems than just the sore throat from the virus that they've got today. Maybe they've got sleep apnea as well, huh?
2: Well, they could, and maybe it's just an acute issue. They could have, you know, acute uh, sessions of, of obstructive sleep apnea related to inflamed tonsils or uh-huh. adenoids or even just nasal congestion that might be affecting them. Of course, things like, um, you know, alcohol that, you know, depresses the neuromuscular systems, anything like that that can compromise the airway. But we're looking at this every day when we look into a patient's mouth. So that's why it became apparent that we are ones that can certainly look at this and assess it.
1: So really, you're already starting to give us some treatment insights. What I've heard so far from Eugene is that one of the things that should be a concern to us, if we've got a partner who's got problems with snoring, Maybe part of the problem has to do with that alcohol that they're drinking before they go to bed. Am I hearing you right?
2: Yes, because so that will definitely compromise the, the muscular system. I mean, everything sort of goes limp. <laughs> and so if it's, the tongue is a muscle and you've got the muscles in the, the oral pharynx or the back of the throat, so that can collapse due to alcohol consumption. And then we go into these, these plate, fleets where our body actually becomes uh, paralyzed in the uh, REM sleep. So that causes uh, further aggravation of the problem.
1: Okay. Well, that is practical information. What about some other things that my listeners should have on their radar screen when it comes to treating sleep apnea?
2: Yeah, David, most of your listeners, I would guess. I'm not sure. I mean, it's pretty common. People know others that snore, and they probably maybe sought out treatment with a uh, sleep center which typically almost always will recommend a CPAP, uh, Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, which is basically a machine that's forcing oxygen down a very narrow airway. Okay. And they are very effective. They are very effective for sleep apnea, and patients have amazing sleep after one night where they may have been suffering for 20 years. But here's the catch. Only about 30% of the people who get a CPAP machine actually wear them
1: only 30% That's it.
2: That's what the study showed. Very low compliance.
1: Well, I've had patients over the years who struggled with this just like any other doctor. I know one of the hardest things when someone first gets one of these CPAP devices, I typically hear people saying like it freaks them out, they how can you get your mind around putting something on your face when you're trying to breathe? I hear a lot of things like that. Is are those common complaints across the board?
2: Those are absolutely the most common things that people feel like they're going to suffocate. And they just, like, can't really embrace the fact that I can't sleep, so I'm going to put a mask on my face. doesn't make sense. It does tend to also dry out their mouth. You can have jaw soreness from it. And, of course, it's uh, not the most appealing thing, so uh, it's not that attractive. But if your life's in danger, you will wear it if you understand that, especially for people who have severe sleep apnea.
1: Well, I heard of a tragic case not long ago of a relatively young man who died in his sleep and they attributed it to sleep apnea. It was someone who was never treated. I don't think he even had the opportunity to to try CPAP. So there's presumably lots of people out there who either have not had the formal sleep tests that you need to get the CPAP or have tried it and just feel, well, it's not worth it, aren't there? Yes,
2: David, I think they may have gotten a CPAP, uh, and maybe it wasn't reinforced how important it was to wear this. Mm-hmm. I think there's a certainly an overwhelming urge to sell these things by the medical equipment companies to get these things in people's hands because insurance will cover it. But I think there's very poor follow-up. Mm. I think there's very poor information given to the patient that this is basically a life-saving device.
1: So you're speaking in favor of CPAP. If someone can tolerate it, if they'll stick with it, and that's the message I usually give to my patients I say stick with it. If this particular mask is not working, talk with the supply company. There's a variety of different ways to get that increased pressure through the airways. Uh, I know a lot of my patients, it seems they're using these what they call nasal pillows now. But um, yeah. I don't know what your experience is. Do those seem to be better tolerated than some of the older masks?
2: I think from what I'm hearing that they are more tolerable. They're certainly more slim. Uh, you know, they're not so overcompensating. At all. You know, it's not covering the whole face. Uh, they are just pointing to the nasal passages, and it's driving, you know, air back into the back of the throat. And I think that there will be more success with these. They're easier to travel with. They're just a lot less cumbersome. Mm-hmm.
1: So the first message we're giving to our listeners today is if you've given up on CPAP in the past, re-explore it because there's new ways of delivering that uh, pressure that can keep your airways open. And I don't know, Gene, you've probably heard these stories too. I mean, I, I know some patients, they won't even travel in a car as a passenger unless they've got their CPAP device because if I want to rest in the car, I got to put the CPAP on really to get some quality rest.
2: Well, you see people falling asleep, you know, sitting in a chair and snoring. Mm-hmm. So they, they are the severe sleep apnea patients. Generally, they're, for the most part, have uh, some level of, you know, weight issues. Typically obese patients uh, are worse. Uh, but there can be some structural issues. And we even see it in thin women. Uh, but those tend to, to be more upper airway resistance than obstructive sleep apnea. But you're right, they can't even travel. They
1: won't travel without their machine. So, Gene, there's a a tried-and-true remedy, CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. These devices can be powerful. They can make a huge difference. Like you said, they can be life-saving. But there's room for other pieces in the puzzle, if you will. And for those that, let's say, for whatever reason, just can't tolerate CPAP, uh, we've got options for them, too, don't we? Well,
2: there are a couple other options. There's surgical procedures, which... Some of those aren't very successful. One of them is the uh, uh, uvulo-pharyngeal, I think it's a U-double-P, whatever that uh, procedure is, where they're basically obliterating the tissue in the back of the throat, in my understanding. And you probably would know better even that uh, not very successful and rather traumatic.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: Then there's uh, an orthognathic procedure where they actually move your jaw surgically. That has great success but I don't think many people really want to go
1: through that procedure. Mm-hmm. We've got to talk more about some of the simple things. We do have to step away just for a couple of minutes. Gene Sambatero is my guest. He's a dentist, someone with a special interest and expertise in the area of stopping snoring. You may have already almost given up on the whole subject, but he's giving you hope because there are some simple things you can do that can make a difference. That's coming up in our next segment of American Indian Living. Stay tuned. We will be right back after this.
0: American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673.
3: So, you want to be a hero? Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on
4: here? It's Kids Getting Fit.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Dr. David DeRose with Dr. Gene Sambatero. We are in our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living, and we're speaking about a pervasive problem It's a problem in Indian country and beyond. The problem is snoring. We've been talking with a dentist. That's what Dr. Sambatero's background is, but he's more than a dentist. He's someone who has a deep interest in sleep apnea and disordered sleep problems. Gene, we got to talk more about these other remedies and especially why a dentist might be involved. You've talked about CPAP. You're not typically prescribing that because it requires a sleep study, right?
2: Correct. Yeah, it has to be done by a more certified sleep physician.
1: And you're not actually doing these surgeries, are you, as far as uh, changing the jaw dimensions or removing that little uh, uvula that kind of hangs down like a pendulum from the, the back of the throat? You don't do that kind of stuff, do you?
2: I don't do those surgeries. We do uh, a new procedure using a dental laser with a non-ablative uh, does not uh, cause any trauma to the tissue. Basically, what it does is it heats up the soft palate, uh-huh. which is basically collagen. And okay. as we age, we lose collagen in that area, and it becomes really flaccid. So using this laser actually heats the tissue up and actually produces collagen over a two-week period. So you get... New collagen forming, so the soft tissue actually tightens up. Really? the consequence of that, that opens up and provides more space or more volume in the back of the throat to improve the airway flow. So I do that procedure. It's not a, considered surgical because there's, there's no cutting. It's not ablative. It doesn't burn. So it's very, very uh, atraumatic.
1: So what do they call this procedure?
2: Well, it's, it's a company that actually was uh, from a medical laser company. And it's called Night lay simply because it's helping people, obviously, with their snoring problems that occur at night. So it's, uh, it tightens up the soft tissue of the soft palate and opens up the airway.
1: So if you're describing to a layperson what the soft palate is, how, how, what terminology do you use to make that understandable when we can't just show them a video on radio?
2: Yeah, that's that's a good point. I would have them. You could open, you can open your mouth wide enough and swallow. You'll see right there's a demarcation where the hard palate, which is where you can put rest your tongue up on, and just there's a small demarcation just behind your last teeth, and you'll see that raise up as you swallow. That's the soft palate.
1: Okay, so we're talking about the roof of the mouth. And as you go backwards, you've got a uh, this hard palate, which is bony structure uh, underlying the tissues there. And as you get further back, the bony structure stops, basically, right?
2: Basically stops. Yes, and that's where the soft palate begins.
1: So basically, doing this procedure that you call night lays, and that's spelled N-I-G-H-T, and then L-A-Z or L-A-S-E, or how do you say L-A,
2: yeah, L-A-S-E.
1: L-A-S-E. So night lays. have you actually seen people in your practice, they come back and they say, I'm not snoring or I'm breathing better?
2: Absolutely. We see it. We do generally three or four sessions, and we'll see improvement even after the first session.
1: Wow, that is really great. Um, I didn't know about that procedure.
2: It's fairly new. It's uh, developed from some of the work that was being done in the medical field with lasers and in terms of tightening up for things like incontinence. So... They just knew that it would tighten up and produce collagen and someone said, so well, let's do some research on, on soft palate and see if it makes a difference there. And it's really, it's very effective.
1: So do you have any feel at this point, Gene, what percentage of dentists might be skilled or trained in this procedure?
2: It's a small number. There are a growing number of dentists that are doing fleet medicine. Typically, they're using oral appliances and we'll have a chance to talk about that hopefully and shortly and... Uh, the night laser, though, is fairly new procedure. There's new research on it, so there's not a whole lot of dentists that are trained to do that. Maybe, I'd say probably only maybe a, a couple hundred in the country.
1: Wow. So folks are seeing that, that you're someone who does it, and I've got listeners throughout the country. Where actually is home base for you?
2: Home base is Columbia, Maryland, uh, about halfway between uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and Washington, D.C.
1: Okay, so you're easy to get to, at least by plane, or if you're on the eastern seaboard, you're kind of centrally located there, uh, at least for many of the big population centers in that part of the country, aren't you?
2: Yes, yeah, very easy to get to. Very okay. Easy. I'm about 20 minutes from Baltimore-Washington International Airport, and there's Dulles Airport, so yeah, it's very easy to get to.
1: And so if I go to your website, this Juliandentist.com, is that going to give me information about your practice or just your books and films and things like that?
2: That site's going to give you more information about the practice and specifics, about out of the application and registration forms and those sort of things. But more information related to this issue, the, the topic is is at drgene.com, D-R-G-E-N-E sambatar com. Well, we'll have blogs there and some media information, some videos about sleep apnea.
1: Okay, so these are actually two different websites. They don't point to the same place.
2: No, they are linked together though. So if you go to one, you go to Dr. Gene Sambatero, you'll be able to get to the com site.
1: Okay, so Gene Sambatero, S A M B A T A R O. That's how Dr. Gene spells his last name, and it's Gene, G-E-N-E. So Dr. D.R. Gene Sambatero, uh, even though I want to I make that uh, Sambatero instead of Sambatero, and you've been very gracious with me. I guess maybe it's that overseas travel that, uh, that does that to me. But anyway, Dr. Gene has got all kinds of free resources there. You can also pick up a copy of his book, Stop the Snore. And if you actually want to see him, uh, you're the director if I understand right, as well as one of the clinicians there at the Julian uh, Center for Comprehensive Dentistry. Have I got that right?
2: Yes, I am. The center was actually named after my father, whose name was Julian, and I believe that he had a heart attack related to sleep apnea. Really? interesting is that he went to a sleep center and they told him he did not have sleep apnea, even though he was snoring very loudly and actually uh, was in a separate bedroom from my mom for many years because of the snoring. Uh, But in 2001, he died of a sudden heart attack, and I think it was related to his sleep apnea. So in honor of his name and to sort of uh, continue his name, we decided to call the the dental office the Julian Center.
1: Wow, and that's J-U-L-I-A-N. Correct. Okay, so juliendentist.com will take you to the practice location, and boy, that's an amazing story. So you've got a, a personal, really vested interest in this whole topic, don't you?
2: I certainly do. I, I don't want other people to have to lose family members as a consequence of something that is fairly easily treated when you think about it. We talked about the surgical procedures, but the CPAP, the nightlays, and then we haven't talked about the oral appliances, these are all easy intervention that could save someone's life. And you, David, as in internal medicine, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to help patients, but I don't think there's anything that's that easy to turn around someone's health. No, I mean getting them to sleep better.
1: No, I mean this is exciting stuff and you've definitely got my interest on those appliances. I just had a patient not all that long ago, a big guy in, in my practice, and he was having problems at least the presenting problem, one of them was clenching his teeth. Uh, and I'll tell you, in that particular context, I was not really thinking about sleep apnea. The next time I see that patient, it's definitely going to be on the radar screen. But we were talking about appliances to help him not grind or not clench. These kind of devices that you put in the mouth, though, can also help prevent or treat snoring problems. Is that right?
2: Yes. And you have to be a little bit cautious about what type of appliance, and this has been a learning uh, process for me as well as other dentists doing sleep medicine, because we've treated this term bruxism for years with just nighttime appliances. Now we've learned that those nighttime appliances, they need to really be titrated, and you need to do a follow-up food study to make sure that the nighttime bruxism splint isn't making their sleep apnea worse.
1: Wow. Okay. So it
2: is possible.
1: Well that is very interesting. So in other words, we may be concerned about the grinding, the clenching of the teeth. We see uh, broken teeth. I even as an internal medicine doctor often look in my pac- patient's mouths and I see that, you know, teeth wear, you know, the grinding and we're thinking that's the problem, but just treating that actually could make an underlying sleep apnea problem even worse, huh? Yes, that's what we've
2: seen. I think it's because the the volume of the plastic might be uh, inhibiting further flow of oxygen to the back of the throat. But we made these appliances for one particular reason, that was to protect the patient's teeth. Rarely did we see the patient stop brushing. In fact, every every two years, we'd have to remake the appliance so they would grind it down or break it from the, from the forces that were generated during the clenching and grinding.
1: Uh-huh. So you're coming up with new strategies right now to actually help them prevent grinding?
2: Yes. So if the grinding is a reflex mechanism to protect the patient from the obstructed airway, we want to treat the underlying problem, and that is, of course, the obstructed airway, which is the tongue. Since the base of the tongue is attached to the mandible, the lower jaw, if we fabricate an appliance that holds their lower jaw forward, in every, any position, when they're laying down, whether it's on their back or their side, it's holding their lower jaw forward, therefore bringing the tongue out of the back of the throat and opening up the airway so they can breathe.
1: Huh. That is interesting. And you're saying often just doing that will stop the bruxism?
2: Yes. Stop the bruxism and the breathing. Because we took away the, the protective mechanism that they needed to survive. So as like I said, that they clenched their teeth, they're, they're actually causing their jaw muscles to tighten, and as a response to that, there's an antagonistic response in the dilator muscles of the throat that actually relax. So, unbeknownst to the patients, because they're unconscious, or I mean, they're sleeping, so they don't know that's going on.
1: So, let me see if I'm understand the, understanding this correctly, Gene. You're saying that sometimes even a successful treatment that stops bruxism or grinding of teeth can actually make their sleep apnea worse and can be life-threatening?
2: Yes, it could, depending on the device that you're using. So now we do not do any bruxism splint unless the patient is willing to do a, either a home sleep study or go to a sleep center and have them do a either a split study at the sleep center, meaning they would do half the night without the appliance and half the night with, or they would do a home sleep study and do that over two nights, one night with it and one night without. So we want some data to look at, is this thing actually helping them or making them work?
1: Wow. I mean, these are questions that a lot of us, even in healthcare circles, may not even be thinking about. You're really alerting us to some important things and letting us know there's some powerful new things that can make a difference that can help people with snoring, aren't there?
2: Yes. I think it's amazing what we can do to intervene. In such a simple way, and cause such a major change in their in their health. As I said, there's very few things that you can intervene with. And if someone has high blood pressure, you give them blood pressure medication, maybe you bring it down. But have you really resolved the problem? Mm. And it may take years for it, whether it be diet or whatever you know uh, your your methodology is. But generally, you don't see these improvements overnight, as you would with treating sleep apnea
1: tremendous stuff. Dr. Gene Sambatero, he is my guest. He's not going away. We've got one more segment coming up. We'll talk more about his book, Stop the Snore, if you want more information. You don't want to miss that. I'm Dr. DeRose. Like I said, our final segment just ahead right up after this.
0: Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1 800 775 4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids.
4: I'm going to be an architect.
0: My dream is to be a chef.
4: At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life.
2: I can go back to college,
4: I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of The American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz.
3: It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr.
0: David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You
1: are back for the final segment of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Dr. Gene Sambatero is with me. We've been talking about snoring, what you can do to stop the snore. If you're just joining us or just have been with us for a few minutes, you may not realize that Stop the Snore is the name of a book by none other than Dr. Gene Sambatero. Gene, how does someone pick up a copy of Stop the Snore?
2: Well, it's available now on Amazon as well as Barnes & Noble in the soft cover book. And we have probably within the next four to six weeks, we'll have an audio version of it.
1: Wow, tremendous. Is that you as the reader or have you got somebody else
2: reading it? I have someone else reading it.
1: Wow, okay. So... Basically, the audio book coming out, it's a great resource. I know when we came out with our 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, we released an audio edition, and, you know, at first I didn't know how well that would go, but a lot of people, they really love those audio books because they can just either download them or they can buy it on CD, they could just pop it in their car, and just another way to learn how to stop the snore as they're driving on their way to work, Right.
2: Hopefully not falling
1: asleep. Yeah, hopefully not. You know, we got to come back and talk some about this. You know, we're talking about the theme of books. You know, both of us are authors. When we wrote our book on high blood pressure, one of the uh, topics that comes up as I'm speaking about the book on the road often is why do I have high blood pressure? And a lot of people are fascinated to learn that it's things happening in the womb That set the stage for high blood pressure. If your mother was stressed, especially during something like the 28th to 36th week of pregnancy, that's when the kidney is developing. If she was stressed physically, mentally, emotionally, that can affect the development of the kidney and can set the stage for lifelong high blood pressure. Now I may be putting you on the spot cuz I don't know a lot about dentistry and and all the roots of why we think people may have dental issues or sleep apnea problems but is there anything in the literature does it go back that far too when it comes to some of these problems we've been talking about?
2: Well I think if you look back at some of the work Dr. Weston Price he looked at different cultures where they were still eating, you know, uh non-processed food, eating food off the land raw uh, food that, uh, you know, was grown in, the, in their area. And the interesting thing is they had well-developed jaws with so no crooked teeth. Huh. They had no cavities, and they had no gum disease. And he, and he followed these cultures, and within one generation of adding processed food into their diet, they started to see dental problems.
1: Really? So, no, this is amazing. What is his name?
2: Weston Price. And so a Weston Price Foundation. Wow, that is information
1: I mean that really fits in with with Native American culture and kind of the the simple practical lifestyle that many first Nation peoples had well, in fact you know we could say all of them had before European contact, right
2: Yes, absolutely. so Western so they can identify with the kind of going back to the nature of the way things were, and Western Price talks about you know things like the importance of breastfeeding which in our society has pretty much gone away. And as a consequence of that, we're not getting that neuromuscular stimulation early on as an infant, and that's going to stifle growth and development of the jaw. Wow.
1: Ooh. So Weston Price, P-R-I-C-E?
2: Correct. W-E-S-T-O-N. W-E-S-T-O-N.
1: Well, that is... You
2: find Weston Price or the Price Pottinger Foundation, P-O-T-T-E-N-G-E-R, some very good information that is very informative in terms of the things that we look at as dentists in terms of the uh, poor growth and development that occurs, which is why you see such a an amazing surge of the need for orthodontics. Hmm. And I remember growing up in the sixties, and very few, very few kids had braces, and now it seems like every every kid you turn around has braces. And so that, their belief is that they didn't get the stimulation from breastfeeding, early introduction of hyperallergenic foods, block the airway, nasal congestion, adenoid problems, tonsil problems.
1: This is this is really amazing stuff. So what you're suggesting is that the evidence shows that if mothers were to nurse their children longer, this would help with jaw development and then less problems down the road as far as sleep apnea.
2: Yes, and we can even go before that, like prenatal nutrition, uh, so the healthier the mother is during, obviously, the gestation period, the easier the birth, the less trauma to the to the infant's head, which can create some malformations that might prevent normal growth and development also. So you add all these things up, poor nutrition, uh, traumatic birth, not breastfeeding, not introducing the right kind of food, uh, or introducing the wrong kind of food that's uh, too early in their age.
1: You know, this brings up a, a whole other subject, and I, I know we've We've really got to talk about this because it is important, and you as a dentist are an expert in it. We're talking about the development of the jaw, and over the years as a physician, I've known of of individuals who've had these uh, jaw surgeries to make the jaw bigger, if you will, to help deal with both cosmetic issues as well as could be breathing problems or other problems. You alluded to this earlier in the show, but, I mean, these are huge surgeries, and one person described it as something like a horrendous surgery, just a whole you know, long process of, well, really dramatic lifestyle impacting surgery where jaws may be wired shut for periods of time and on an all-liquid diet. Are there other things that we can do for people that have problems with that lower jaw, that uh, mandible, if you will?
2: Yes, if you, if you certainly intervene early on. And that could be anywhere from say six years old to maybe eighteen or even twenty-one. Uh-huh. We can uh, introduce appliances that will hold their jaw in a forward position, and that will stimulate the growth centers in the in the joint, the temporomandibular joint. So you can actually get the mandible to grow downward and forward, and that will help correct that malocclusion. So, if someone has a deep, you know, overjet or overbite. We can move the jaw forward as a consequence and opens up the back of the airway so they're less likely to have airway issues.
1: Wow, so seeing a dentist when your child is young actually could save them surgery down the road.
2: Yeah, because if you don't do it early enough, you might have an only choice would be to do surgery. And as you said, it's it's a very it's very traumatic. Your your jaw's wired, you have to basically drink your meals to a straw. I don't think too many people really want to go through that. And there's also some other um, potential side effects like numb numb lip, teeth dying as a consequence of that. So it's not a very favorable surgery. So if you can do that early on, that's a great way to, to interrupt that and actually stimulate growth and development.
1: So let's say, Gene, someone is not a candidate. They're, they're, they're maybe a tribal elder, let's just say. And they're not a candidate for whatever reason, or feel they don't want to go through this process of addressing the jaw size, which is really too small. That mandible, that lower, uh, you know, part of the mouth. There are there appliances that you, as a dentist, can make that can help. I mean, I've heard of things called mandibular advancement or advancers. Is that really a term? Yes,
2: yeah. it's really not that different than what we were talking about for children. The difference is in a child. We're going to make that change with that appliance that's going to be permanent. In an adult, we're basically just bringing that jaw forward temporarily while they're sleeping. Mm. But they're going to have to wear that appliance for the rest of their life. We can't have that change occur that we can do in young children. But the, the goal is the same. We're, in one, the child was creating a permanent change. In the adult, basically, the temporary change to get them through the nights of their breathing.
1: So basically, well, let me just ask the question. We talked about CPAP and how many people find that uncomfortable. Some can't even tolerate it. Are these appliances that a dentist would make? Are they generally better tolerated or worse?
2: Definitely. Well, you have to take individual by individual. But i say across the board, they're more tolerable than CPAP. Mm-hmm. But once again, you're, you're going to bed with a hunk of plastic in your mouth. It, it does take a little time to get used to but what I have found, if you kind of lead the patient into certain expectations that, hey, this is going to make you sleep better, you're going to feel better, you're going to have more energy during the day, you're not falling asleep while you're driving, you're not falling asleep at work, you're more energetic, I mean, you're just going to, have to be in a better mood. They sort of overcome those adversities of having something in their mouth at night.
1: Great stuff, Gene. Believe it or not, the clock has continued to run. I guess we all knew that, but our time is just about gone. You've got a website that's got more information on this, videos, things that people can uh, take advantage of without charge, and then you've also got access to your book there. Give us your website again.
2: They can go to D-R G-E-N-E, S A M as in Mary, B as in Boy A T is in Tom, A R O dot com. It's Dr dot com.
1: Okay. So if you're wanting to pick up a copy of the book, Stop the Snore, they can get that there at com. Is that correct? Yes. A lot of other great information there. Gene, we have got to run. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: David, thank you. It's It's been a pleasure.
1: For all of you that have joined us today on American Indian Living, hopefully today has given you some insights into something that can make a huge difference in your life, the life of your family, the life of your tribe. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health.
0: Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.